Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Pharmacist contributions to the primary literature are invaluable to building the broader pharmacotherapy knowledge bank. Demands on time from competing activities can result in losses in this vital work. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director in the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence, and your program host. With me today to share his advice and expertise is Dr. Paul Zumita, Director of Clinical Pharmacy Services at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Gretchen. How are you today? Doing well. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I very much appreciate it. Paul, tell me a little bit about your background and your current practice site. I graduated at Northeastern University in 1999 with my PharmD and was contemplating residencies. But actually at the time, the Brigham was actually offering spots for clinical pharmacists. And so I took advantage of that. Actually, I'm in a unique situation where I've grown up through the clinical realm, but actually didn't do a clinical pharmacy residency. I came right out of school with very little knowledge of much, as most new graduates do. And then kind of got thrown into the fire in the medical intensive care unit, where I spent the next decade or so immersed in medical intensive care unit information. And what I soon realized was I was completely deficient of any knowledge or information specific to critical care. And it was really evolving at that time. I found myself in the library constantly, in the medical library at the hospital, reading and reading. My background really is coming from an untrained clinical pharmacist in the intensive care unit in the late 90s, early 2000s. I then progressed to be a clinical manager at the hospital where I was overseeing the clinical pharmacist in critical care as well as other areas of the hospital. About two years ago, I was promoted to director of clinical pharmacy, overseeing all the inpatient clinical pharmacists, including oncology, critical care, emergency medicine, all the inpatient units, cardiology, et cetera. So it's kind of been a long and winding road to where I am today, starting with young graduate 1999 and going through the intensive care unit, then clinical management, then being a director of clinical pharmacy. So a lot of boots on the ground training and building yourself up to where you are today. What's your number one piece of advice for someone who wants to get started with publishing? My number one piece of advice, Gretchen, is just you have to believe that the readers of this information are going to benefit from it. And that can be pretty broad, whether that be people within your own institution or people from other institutions trying to do something similar. I think the reality is that you have to believe that has to be a core part of why we're publishing. The information you're trying to get out there is hopefully filling a gap that isn't currently clear in the literature and can really help. That really has to be, in my opinion, where you start. I can see that. How do you fit publishing into your day-to-day work, being so busy? I don't come from like an academic background where you need to publish, publish or perish in the academic world. That's not the world that I or many of the inpatient clinical pharmacists live in. If we can publish, it's more of a separate add-on thing that we can do, looked upon nicely to have, but not a must-have. Finding time to do this can be extraordinarily difficult, and I kind of equate it to one of two things. One is if you're someone who likes to work out, you'll find a way to work out. You can put every excuse in the world, but if you fit it into your schedule, you can make it work. Also, I'll go back to a much younger time when I was in elementary school. Never forget this. The principal came to the class, and with the principal and the teacher combined, they were giving a talk about homework. Essentially, they were saying there is never going to be a perfect time to do your homework. 
You just have to sit down, start doing it. And I kind of equate that similar to publishing, where there's not going to be a perfect time. You're not going to be able to carve out hours of your day. Well, I have three kids, a wife. I commute an hour each way to the hospital. I got my hospital responsibilities, all those things. Just trying to find a little bit of time and dedicating it to something that I really care about and believe in, which is publishing. There's never going to be a perfect time. You just have to believe and become efficient with your time. That's coming from me, who I traditionally would consider myself to be incredibly inefficient. So I try to work on my efficiencies to try to say, okay, how can I carve out some time, whether it be after the kids go to bed for an hour, or maybe I can go to work an hour too early to try to figure out time to sit down and write. Everyone writes differently. People maybe can fit it in five or 10 minutes per day or per time. I'm more of a block person where I need to probably have at least an hour to like clear my mind to start writing the information down that I'm trying to convey. But everyone does it a little bit different, becoming efficient with your time. Going back to that core belief that that has to be motivated by something, that this is going to be impactful to someone that's going to read it in the future. Well, that's great advice. And I love the correlation to the exercise. What are some of the different types of publications that we can get involved with as pharmacists? There's a tremendous amount of publication types that we can get involved in. For example, there are review papers. Even within the review papers, there are many different types. Analytical, there's technical reviews, there's meta-analysis reviews, the systemic reviews. There's also like letters to the editor. There are original research. And then there are kind of like invited reviews sometimes for a topic. Typically, it would be someone who has been involved in a certain aspect of whether it be cardiology, oncology, that you'll be asked to write a review on a certain type of clinical topic. There are a tremendous amount of things that you can get involved in. Probably the easiest one would be a narrative or analytic review of a topic that you're very, very interested in. In fact, that's how I got started in my research career. Very interested in critical care. It's a topic that I had read a lot about. I saw in clinical practice and I saw that what I read about and what was happening in clinical practice didn't exactly match. This was in the late 90s, early 2000s with the use of vasopressin in critical care. I started writing a review paper on it just to kind of get my own thoughts combined. It took me almost five years to get that paper published, but it really helped me solidify my feelings on the topic based off of the research and what I saw in clinical practice. That sounds really interesting. Tell us a little bit more about that project. It sounds like something that you're particularly proud of. If you look at PubMed, I'm about a little bit more than 80 PubMed hits in. That publication on the, the vasopressin review, which was one of the first things that I got published. At the time, I had a student and we were really talking about the topic. And she, Bonnie Greenwood, said, let me take this on. You have it at this level. Let me write a little bit more and then you can review. We can go back and forth. That really brings back fond memories of many, many years ago when we were trying to figure out how to actually even do this. But I'm very proud of working with all my past students and residents and coworkers and people, colleagues, even outside of the hospital. Incredibly proud. I was also involved in the 2018 guideline for the Society of Critical Care Medicine for pain, agitation, delirium, immobility, and sleep in the critical care, which I was incredibly proud of and lucky to be a part of that group. It took several years to get that guideline written. So that was probably the pinnacle of my publication career as far as, you know, something that probably the most impactful, but I wouldn't have been able to be involved in that without the publications prior getting me to that point. The guideline publication through the Society of Critical Care Medicine was fantastic, but really is more the little wins along the way. That's wonderful. Quite the accomplishments and sounds like lifelong professional relationships that you've made over the years. Well, in addition to those successes, what barriers have you run up against in your journey? When I think about barriers, I think there was actually a recent publication that suggested that less than 2% of residency projects get to the point of publication. 
I have a class early in the summer for all of our PGY1 and PGY2 residents at the Brigham on research and publications. And so I ask them, all of them every year, raise your hand if you want to get your research project published. And of course, everyone in the room typically raises their hands. And so I said, well, the data suggests that about 2% of research projects through residency programs actually get published. That's a mind-opening situation. You try to figure out, well, what are the barriers? And to be honest, I think about even that first paper that I wrote, it took me almost five years to get it published because it's just incredibly difficult and for good reasons. The peer review process is there to help you and it has helped me tremendously. Without having proper mentors in the process, it's just incredibly difficult. The number one barrier to me is to try to get a mentor that will help you through the process so that you don't get frustrated. They're carving this stuff out out of your own time. And if you are getting stifled in that process, you can just see how you can give up quickly. Really just ingraining it into your work ethic and mind to say that this really has to get published and going through the different steps of the peer review publication process, which can be incredibly frustrating. Having someone to bounce it off and someone as a mentor can even say, listen, this is just let you know this is what probably is going to happen. You're going to get a bunch of comments back. The classic line that I like to think about that my mentor, John Finicos at the hospital said, you know, if you get a paper back for someone to review and it just says big check mark, good job, that person isn't doing their job reviewing that paper. What you want to have back is just all red or these days you want it all the track changes or comments on the side, just littered with that. That shows that that person cared enough to review every word that was written and to give you feedback. Having those mentors can help you overcome the barriers of just that stifling peer review process. That's really insightful. You talked about how you worked your way out through the process. What training do pharmacists need to be able to publish? It's incredibly helpful to have a residency training. I am also the director of the PGY2 critical care program at the Brigham, along with being the director of clinical pharmacy practice. And so with that residency training, that really embeds research and publication into that year or two. It's not necessary, but I think it's helpful in that you have a structured year or two that a part of that is research and publications. Another level of training would be fellowship. And so if you're doing a fellowship, that's more on the research and publication side of things that would really help move things along. So I don't think there's any specific training that pharmacists have to do. I think residency training and fellowship training does certainly help. But with the process, I think it's important to have mentors which have gone through the process prior and they will help train you, whether it be formally or informally, through the process. With 80 manuscripts under your belt, walk me through the process of submitting to a journal. I had asked earlier about the different types. It really depends on what type of research you do or publication that you're looking to do. So for example, if you're looking to publish original research, one of the first things I try to do in that process is actually to try to target journals. If I answer this research question, which journal would want that published? Where do I envision that being published? It's kind of like applying to colleges. You know, you kind of have your REACH journal or your REACH school, then you have your safety schools. And then my classic line to my residents, I have a top five and put them in order. This is before you even do the research. What are the top five journals that you want this to go in? The reach being the first and down to number five would be kind of like your safety net. It depends on the type of project that you're doing. And the original research, if it's a review, what I oftentimes will do is reach out to a journal and say, thinking about a review on this topic that I see that there's a hole in the literature, would your journal potentially be interested in this journal review of X, Y, and Z? The editors will be very honest. Yes, they'll say it has to meet certain qualifications, et cetera. But with the review, targeting journals is a lot easier because it'll know what that editor wants for specifics. 
writing a blind review and then submitting it can be done for sure, but you should generally have an idea where you want that readership to be. For example, if it's something that's very pharmacy oriented, maybe we're looking at the American Journal of Health System Pharmacists. The readership to the AGHP will typically be pharmacists of the health system, whether it be ambulatory or inpatient. But I'm sure the reach to physicians and nurses is a lot less with that. Whereas you might want to reach to a different journal if you're looking for impact to providers or nurses, respiratory therapists, as an example. The reality is that if you have your top five for original research and the first two are reaches for impact factor, say you wanted to try your impact factor of five or six, you're going to get fantastic peer review back. You might not be able to get it into those two journals, but they'll give you fantastic peer review. So by the time you submit to journal three, it's not even the same manuscript anymore. The manuscript has been modified so much based off of the fantastic feedback in the peer review process. But along that process, it can be an incredible amount of frustration. So you get this paper back, people critiquing your work. It's just human nature to be a little bit defensive at first. So I usually just read it, put it aside, and about two or three days later, read it again with a total different mind. Your first response is, they didn't read the paper. But maybe they did read the paper and your paper just wasn't clear enough. That's the mindset there. So I like to quote that I average about three or four rejections per manuscript that I've had published. And that might be underestimate in some cases. So it really does help hone the paper down. So targeting the journals that you want, having a top five is generally what I do. There are times when it gets rejected by all five and we have to move on. It kind of also gives you a goal. If you know what's top five, you know that you're reaching for good journals for one and two and appropriate journals for three, four, and five, that you'll probably land within that. And if it's not, then maybe you have to rethink the criteria that you're looking for. That approach makes a lot of sense. Is there a small scale way to get into this? So it really depends on your point in your career. When we think about learners like students and residents, just asking to get involved. If you're in a pharmacy school, talking to the professors, the mentors within your school and say, listen, I'm looking to get involved in something relatively small, help out in any way, shape or form, then that'll kind of give you the in. This has happened to us a tremendous amount of times at the Brigham where students and residents have come up to us and say, listen, you know, I, I know that you're interested in X, Y, and Z topic and that you do a lot of research and publications on certain things. And so is there any way that I can personally get involved? What we'll typically do is we'll give them a job. In fact, we actually have people who get involved in research and publications with us. It's kind of informal, but it is a contract. And we give them certain things that need to get done in order for them to meet the qualifications of publication with our projects. We've had just dozens of learners, whether it be students in school or first and second year residents who have gotten published with our team at the Brigham based off of meeting the qualifications, what we're asking them to do for, per project. Every project is going to have a different thing. Maybe it's a data collection, a little data synthesis, different things that we can have, get them involved in. Data collection itself doesn't warrant authorship, but be reviewing the paper. Maybe they write a section, just kind of getting them involved in the process. As they get involved in that process, now they have that experience. And maybe they can, as they go into a residency the following year or second year residency, then they can kind of help lead the project and then see the whole circle of life. I've seen a tremendous amount of times where young, inexperienced learners then become the mentors on projects and the senior authors just through years of going through the grind and the circular learning effects of going through the process. You shared a little bit about working with pharmacy learners. Are there advantages to solo work versus collaborating with others on research and publication? I grew up in team sports. I'm a team guy. But I also understand that solo work can also be extraordinarily important. People bring their positive strengths, right? And so ironically, one of my strengths is not actually grammar, for example. Like I'm pretty awful at grammar. And so bringing different folks in that have different expertise with obviously their clinical perspectives, but also other things that can help you with. 
I do think that teamwork is helpful because the reality is the teamwork really is what the peer review process is about as well. It's just people are outside of your circle that are giving feedback. If you want to publish something solo, I think it then really says that this is what that one individual thinks. And so I have published a few things solo, but most of my stuff has been through the group of folks, me helping them or them helping me through the whole cycle of the process. So I don't know if there's a big advantage to solo work. I know for myself, it's very helpful having a team. Even if it's a relatively small paper, we've had opportunities to write letters to the editor. And I'll typically tie in one or two of the people that were involved in that research with me to help me write it just to get their different perspective. I know that particularly early in my career, I was very opinionated that there was a right or wrong answer on something. And I can't imagine if those things were published that it would stand the test of time. There's really very little black and white in clinical practice and kind of tempering some of those opinions. And then through a team that can help that. So somebody might read and say, well, that might be a little bit too harsh or a little too direct where that may not necessarily be true. There's no absolutes, right, Gretchen? Like, so it's, you know, this is the stuff that I've learned over my time. Personally, I don't think solo projects and publications in the medical realm are all that important compared to teamwork. Within the team, typically the primary author or the first author in the publication is really the person that's driving most of it. The last author is typically the senior author. So those first and the last authors are typically the most important people on a publication. So depending on what the person's role is. So I do think it's very important for people to be primary authors, but solo, that's tough. Particularly if you're talking about a complex medical question that you're trying to answer, having several opinions to help formulate that paper is probably very, very important. It adds to the nuance as well. Can you share any additional pearls for success for our listeners? You have to really just believe that what you're doing, putting it into your habits of getting this stuff down, having a team within that team, holding each other accountable to contracts. One other thing that we do for teams, this is on the research side before we get to the publication, but this is also helpful on the publication side, is that once a week, we'll meet. You say, well, how do you have time for that? Our meetings, I kid that we call it the, the trademark five-minute meeting. So the idea is that it's a five-minute meeting. It never goes more than five minutes, and it can go as short as you want. It can be 30 seconds. But the group is getting together once a week for five minutes total. And if it requires follow-up, then a separate meeting is set up with the people that are going to do that follow-up. It ensures that people will be there because you know it's going to be five minutes or less, but also ensures that the group is all kind of tied in together as often as once a week. That helps that team communication process. Accepting feedback, that's just so important, both within your team and in the peer review process. Accepting mentors and their recommendations as you move forward. Being persistent, there's nothing more than I can say that you have to be persistent in the process. It's going to be a long and difficult road most of the time, having that rose grow through the concrete, right? So it's not going to be easy, but it can happen. But of course, balancing, right? I'm not here saying that you should forget about outside obligations or you should forget about your current jobs. Like balancing it all is kind of one of the pearls, right? So it's like not going all in on publications and forgetting about clinical practice or forgetting about your outside of work responsibilities and just using your resources along the lines of the mentors, right? So if you have a mentor that has done this a bunch of times and they're very collegial, working with them and using that resource for guidance. Those are my big tips. I think that's great advice. So what do you see as the future of pharmacy-based publication? Well, I'm very hopeful that more than 2% of our original research from residency projects gets published. I am very hopeful that that number will go up. It could be a number of reasons why that 2% is what it is. Part of it just could be that it just wasn't brought across the finish line to where it should be. A lot of times, 
what happens with publication bias is that if it's a negative, you didn't answer the question that we thought or the, the results weren't what we thought they were, then you kind of lose steam and you don't publish it. But that really needs to kind of change that paradigm. I'm hoping that that pharmacies, pharmacists, including pharmacy residents and the mentors of pharmacy residents, publish the results of their work to get a full body and to decrease the publication bias. Also, I think pharmacists are becoming more and more involved in grant writing and original papers and going through the traditional model of academia. It's been going on for many, many years. It's just not as abundant within the world of pharmacy as it is in the physician world. And I think that that's moving forward more and more fellowships, grant writing, getting funding from different sources such as NIH, et cetera, which can happen. It's a very difficult and long road, which I'm personally not involved in, but uh, know that there's tracks for that and that the pharmacists are doing that. Within guidelines, whenever I look at a guideline, I look, who's the pharmacist on this guideline? And so I think that we're seeing most publications with guidelines are having multidisciplinary folks. I'm hoping that pharmacists are involved in guidelines moving forward with just most of clinical practice. It's true in critical care and cardiology, et cetera. So just a whole abundance of getting those original researches done, you know, hopefully getting some grants and also being involved in guidelines are the big ones. Well, that's a great vision for the future. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today to share your insights and expertise. It's been great having you. I really appreciate that, Gretchen. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.